For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, please bless me as I preach to bring forth your word truly and build up your people with the knowledge of this Christmas gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to zoom in this Christmas Eve on just that single last phrase in the verse, Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord, not Christ a Lord, not the Lord Christ, what could have just been some additional honorary title, but the Lord as in the Lord God, Yahweh himself, the Lord who we've heard about throughout all of his layers of unfolding of his plan to save us throughout the Old Testament. The Lord, Yahweh, that is who got born in the flesh on Christmas morning. Christ the Lord. And I think, as I sort of pondered on this, this Christmas season, um, I think that we're, um, because we still live in a semi-Christian culture uh, and sort of images of the infant Christ are pretty ubiquitous, I think we've so latched on to the sort of infant humanity of Christ, which is true and right and real and the major part of Christmas, that I think sometimes we forget the backdrop against which the infancy of the Messiah presents itself um, in stark truth by contrast. What I'm trying to say is we forget the full measure of the divinity of God the Son when we think about the Incarnation. What I mean is this, and think it to yourself. I think if you asked the average Christian on the street, you just stopped a Christian and asked them to kind of just quick describe what is the Incarnation, I think we generally think about it in the category as if God the Son sort of went into some sort of cosmic funnel and kind of diminished himself into this smallness that is then Jesus and kind of made himself helpless. That way of seeing it has some truth to it. But I think it's dangerously imprecise. One of the benefits of getting to worship as uh, in this Anglican tradition is we don't have to rely on just our own wit to come up with good theology. We have many faithful guides. Chief among them is the creeds, um, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And in the Athanasian Creed, there's this marvelous phrase that gives the full and a better description of the truth of the Incarnation. And the phrase is this. Actually, if you want to find it, it's on page 771 of your prayer book. Just so you know, I'm not bluffing. I'm not making this up. <laughs> the Athanasian Creed, a 4th century creed of the church cherished um, since its writing, in the, about uh, maybe 10 lines down on page 771, you'll see this phrase about the Incarnation of the Son of God. That the Incarnation, the, the coming together of humanity and divinity in Jesus was not by conversion of God of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. The difference between those two things might not be apparent at first glance, so stick with the phrase. Not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, it's not some funnel of transformation, but by taking of the, of man, of the manhood into God. What this truth is saying, this creed is asserting, the true theology of the incarnation of the Son of God, 
is it's not a diminishment of God the Son. It's an addition to God the Son. But all of the attributes that God the Son has had from eternity past, he continued to have once taking on flesh. So the wonder, and it's there kind of woven into our hymnody, um, the wonder is that that little baby was the same person who, while he was laying in the manger unable to speak, was holding together the entire universe as he had been doing since creation began, that we know from elsewhere in the New Testament. Through the word, all things were made and came into being and had their being. And it says in Colossians, in him, all things hold together. That was always true. It remained true once he took on flesh. I think we're prone to forget this truth of the incarnation. So what's really mind-blowing about the truth, and this is what I've been really kind of noodling on this Christmas with delight, is that all of the attributes of God remain true before the incarnation, in the midst of the incarnation, after the incarnation. And I think one of the things that really opens up the mystery of Christmas is that it's of the nature of God that he is not subject to change. Right? There's no shadow of change in him, it says in the book of James. Whoever he was from the very beginning, before time, immemorial eternity past, he will always be that same person without change, and will always be that person, or those three persons, I should say more properly, without change. So the mystery of Christmas is that if we rightly grip the theology of that this is God the Son incarnate, somehow, even though this took place in time and space for us, God did not change. God can't change. Something got added to him, but if he doesn't change that, what that means by deduction is that this was God's plan all along. From before, like before create the creation of the world, God had in his very character, in his very mind, which doesn't change, that he wanted to unite himself with the creatures that bear his image. And he did that on Christmas Day through the flesh of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He united himself to his creatures. God and man united in one person, Jesus Christ, and yet God hasn't changed. This was his saving plan all along. That's how it's true when we see elsewhere in the New Testament that before the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain, it says in Revelation. And then similarly, before the foundation of the world, it says, you, his elect, were chosen to be ransomed by him, united to him by his mercy before the foundation of the world. God has not changed. Not before the incarnation, not in the incarnation, not after. So we see all of a sudden the great paradoxes of Jesus that escape language. We're going already beyond the bounds of normal logic and language. They just start unfolding one after the other. That God, who by his nature, God the Son, just like God the Father, just like God the Spirit, one God, is incapable of suffering. Right? Suffering and change go together. And yet now by the addition of this humanity into the Godhead, now God can experience suffering firsthand through this sort of union, this bridge, what the theologians call the hypostatic union. Now God, who already had perfect knowledge of suffering because he knows all things, as it were, got to experience it from the inside through this link that is the person of Jesus, God 
and man. And this is, in fact, um, why he came. Because only as by taking on humanity into his divine life was he then capacitated to suffer on our behalf, to die for us. Which is why we have communion on Christmas Eve. We don't stop having remembrance of his death and resurrection. This is the telos, the end game, the reason for taking on flesh in the first place. Because God couldn't die in his divine nature. Only a human can die. And so it is human nature he died. But God the Son didn't change. It's wild to, to try and get your head around the mystery of Christmas, that God did not change even as he took our humanity into his own life. That he came so that he was able to suffer, so that he could give his life as a ransom for me, as a ransom for you, to purchase your life and unite you through faith, through the Holy Spirit, to himself, which was his plan from the beginning. That we would enjoy him as he enjoys us, as we are now reconciled to him, not by some sort of legal contract where now we're on speaking terms, but on a union more intimate than any human union that could be imagined. And so our response to this Christmas gospel is always the same. Faith. And from faith, worship, which is just the expression of gratitude to the doer of the great deed. In this case, the living God. O come, let us adore him. Amen. Amen.